church since my family returned back from Ghana in 2010, and uh, I love Stonebridge Church. Amen? Um, I serve as a executive director, CEO, whatever, make up a name for uh, Catalyst for Africa, and I work with African leaders in about 14 different countries with 30 different leaders in various countries throughout West and East Africa, and um, we do leadership training, leadership development, and uh, as Russell said, the team is on their way back from Greece where they've been ministering to our missionaries that we support in Greece. It's a tough life, but I think Jeremy had something to do with choosing where they went, so y'all can give him a hard time about that. Um, But I'm glad to be here and uh, glad to be able to share with you. We are walking through. I got a little echo or hum. I don't know. Do I need to back up or what do I need to do? Don't tell me what to do. Did it, that work? That's better. You want to come? You want to come by my side? This is Mike Bedingfield, y'all, and we used to play church league basketball, and I almost lost my Christianity playing with him. It wasn't his fault. It was a referee's fault. Got it? Make me sound good. So we're going through the book of John, and I love that when David started this series that he just openly confessed that he did not like this book very much, and I will not jump on his bandwagon, but I will say of all the four Gospels, it is not my favorite either, but I love what we're going through, and there's so many amazing passages of Scripture that just come to life, and I want to just go through a little review with you real quick, um, just as part of, it was also written by mortal human beings. David, our pastor, mentioned the synoptic gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and that John stands alone. Synoptic literally means together with a common view, but each of these books is unique, and the authors were writing to a particular audience. So in essence, what that means is each one of the books of the gospels was written by a different author for a particular audience with a particular meaning, even though it was God-inspired and God-breathed, it was still written for a specific audience. And if you look, Matthew was really written specifically to a Jewish audience by Matthew and is known as the parable gospel. If you read through the book of Matthew, you will read uh, parables ad nauseum um, because Matthew was that he told. Mark's considered the earliest writing and also the shortest. It was written for a Roman audience or a pagan audience. And the word immediately is used often to show the expediency of Jesus' ministry. And when I was in seminary, we did this um, thing called inductive Bible study. And I remember my first seminary class, I took the book of Mark. Now now we're gone. If this goes in and out, Mike, I'm, we're good. He just did that to make sure I was watching him. So in the book of Mark, it's like the first book that I ever, like the professor said to me, Go home and read this book like six times in one sitting. And I was like, I've never done that in my life. But, you know, it's like that's what the professor asked me to do. And I went home and blocked off an hour and a half and read through the book of Mark like six times. But it was amazing what God showed me when I just took that hour and a half and just read over and over and over again that book. And so I want you all to do that in the book of John before David preaches his next message. Go home and read it like six times in one sitting and just see what happened. I'm not kidding, but um, I am sort of. But so Mark is this great book that is broken up into 16 chapters. And if you go Mark 1 through 8, it's Jesus building up to where he asked this one question of his disciples. 
who do people say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ. And immediately, as soon as Jesus is acknowledged as the Christ, then the last eight chapters are basically about him going to the cross. And the last eight chapters are about him preparing the disciples for his death and resurrection. And then Luke, the physician, was writing for a Gentile audience. He shows Jesus' compassion on Gentiles and Samaritans. And so that's his kind of focus, what he's trying to hit at, is that the the gospel is for Gentiles as well as Jews. And then the book of Luke, I mean the book of John, as we're beginning to dive into, what is the focus of his writing? It was written particularly to a Jewish audience, but as David mentioned, it was probably written around 80, 90 to 110, so at least a lifetime after Jesus was crucified and rose again. His book established Jesus as the Son of God, and he uses the term Son of Man, that he was fully human, but a lot of the focus is on his divinity, and the word signs is used throughout the book of John as a dominant theme. So therein is your review. And then now I want to give you a quick seminary course. How many of you all have been to seminary? Let me see your hands. Okay, one of you. So this will be easy learning for you all. This is the greatest lesson I learned in seminary education in my three years of getting a Master's of Divinity. When we read the Bible, many times, you know, you, you, get your, you do your daily devotion and you open up the Bible and you say, God, give me a word. But I think we miss a lot in not using this kind of method to learn about things that God wants to bring out. So the first thing that I would remind you of is observation. Just observe What's going on in the passage? When you read a, a, a section of scripture, you just want to take observation of what is going on in this passage. And then the second thing would lead us into interrogation to ask lots of questions. Who are the main characters? What are the themes being brought out? What's the author trying to say in his or her cultural context? And what is the flow of this passage about? And then the last piece is application. It's after having observed and interrogated the passage, We ask finally, how does this apply to my life in ministry? And I think many times we tend to jump to the A part when we're reading our scripture and we want to know what's this application for my life without doing kind of the groundwork of observing what's going on. Secondly, asking lots of questions, really what's this whole passage about and then saying, God, what do you want to say to me in the midst of this passage? So y'all got it? Oya. Everybody say Oya. Y'all are almost there. Okay. All right. So if you have your Bible, turn with me to John chapter 2, and we'll just read from the screen together. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. And then he told them, now draw some out. The banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from. Though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. 
What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his his disciples believed in him. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me now and let's pray together. So God in heaven, I thank you and bless you for every man and woman that's come to this service to not only worship you, but to hear your word. And Father, we pray as in Hebrews 4, it says that your word is sharper than any two-edged sword to dividing asunder to the joints and marrow to the very discerning of our thoughts. Father, I pray that in the next few minutes that we have together to look at your word, that you would speak to us the word that you have for us as your people, that you would challenge us, that you would encourage us, that you would break us, that you would mold us more into your image and that your word would become a reality in our lives and in our ministries. And so, God, we give you the praise and glory, and we thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we look at this passage, I love that the very first line, it says, on the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. And I don't think it's by accident that John starts this chapter with that verse, with that phrase, on the third day. And if you look back in John 1, previously... He says in verse 29, the next day John saw Jesus coming. And then verse 35, the next day John was there again. And then in verse 43, the next day Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. But then in John chapter 2, he says, on the third day, Jesus was at a wedding in Cana of Galilee. Does the third day have any significance in our Christian faith? (laughs) Do you think those words don't jump off the page as John is writing this To a Jewish audience to know that on the third day, Jesus rose from the dead. That Jesus wedded humanity with God on the third day. That he rose from the dead. That he brought together in holy communion the reconciliation of the whole world to himself at a wedding in Cana of Galilee on the third day. It's a sign that John wanted us to remember That on the third day, significant things happen. Even though at the time of this writing, as he's writing to a Jewish audience, they may not know exactly what he's moving to, but John does. Amen? And so, here's this interaction between Jesus and his mother. And it says, Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. And I want to just show you real quick this slide that gives you a little geographical context. So previously in John 1, as David's been teaching us, John was baptizing in the Jordan River, which is where that Tel Salim Anion, somewhere in that general southern area below the Sea of Galilee. And now Jesus and his mother and his disciples, some of which were part of John's disciples, have moved up to Cana and they're at a wedding. And so they're at this place and it says... That Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. And when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, response to his mom, Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, My time has not yet come. And I love Mary's response to Jesus at that moment. She completely ignores Jesus. She doesn't acknowledge Anything that he said, he, she simply turns to the servants and says, do whatever he tells you to do. 
And I love that in this moment, there is this peace that I see. Now, you can interpret this any way you want to. But when Jesus says, my time has not yet come, I think there is that part of humanity of Jesus that says, I really don't know when I'm to launch into the ministry. And if you look back in John 1, when John is talking about John the baptizer baptizing Jesus, John reflects that he saw, John the Baptist saw like a dove descending on Jesus. But I don't know that it says that Jesus fully acknowledged that he knew that there was some kind of significant thing that happened to him when he was baptized. He just went into the water along with the other people to be baptized by John. And John said, you are the Lamb of God. And so you know there's a part of Jesus that knows he is the Son of God. But in this moment, he says, my time has not yet come. Now, the first thing that I would say to you in this passage is, mama knows best. And it's always good to obey your mama. Amen? And so here's Mary, who is basically catapulting her son, kicking him out of the cradle of being a carpenter to being a rabbi to now fully engaging into the ministry that he's called into. And I would say that there is a place in the gospel for us that Jesus needs us to be Mary's to, to, to each other. Amen? That Jesus needs us to be Mary, that we need to say to one another, hey, it's time to engage in ministry. I don't know if you're like me, but for somebody to, to, to push me out of the cradle or to get into the game, it's a little bit terrifying. And I know I, I was thinking back when I was in high school and I was not as big as I am now, and I'm getting bigger by the minute, thanks to shoulder surgeries. But when I was in high school, I was literally like the little 98-pound weakling, third string, everything in football and basketball. And I remember that time when the coach said to me, Mosley, get in the game. And I'm thinking to myself, why did he call my name? You know, I mean, I don't know. I'm not fast. I'm not big. I'm not strong. Why did he call me into the game? But I knew it was time for me to get in the game. I didn't stay on the sideline. I went and got in the game And I remember the first time I was a running back, third string, and the first time they handed me the ball, like I ran over my tackle because I was so, you know, amped up about running the ball and I didn't wait for him to block his guy. And I ran over him and fumbled, you know, stumbled on myself and fell down and tackled myself on my tackle. You know, but that's kind of how we feel when when it's time for somebody to say it's time to get in the game, right? We kind of go... I'm not really ready yet. I haven't prayed up yet. I haven't done your inductive Bible study method yet, Michael. I don't, I don't really know the Bible. And yet I think God is saying to us, now's the time to engage. That, that God wants to use you to engage in ministry. Amen? I don't know if you know that the passion of our pastor, and I love, that he talks about all of us doing our deal. You ever heard that? any of you that have come here, that he wants every one of us, no matter what your job is, he believes, and I believe like him, that God's given us a passion and a calling to do ministry. Maybe it's prayer ministry, maybe it's evangelism, maybe it's outreach, doing some kind act of kindness in the community. 
I don't know what it is, but I believe God has placed in each of our lives a calling to do ministry. And God wants to involve each one of us in ministry. And I think many of us, like Jesus in this moment, we say to like Mary, dear woman, why are you bothering me? It's not my time yet. And then she just ignores him and says, look, listen, go and do whatever he says. And I love the fact that Jesus, looking around the room, he sees these six urns, these six big 20 to 30 gallon jars that are used for ceremonial cleaning in the Jewish culture. In a Jewish house, there were always jars of water as you entered into the house to wash your feet or to completely wash yourself so that you came into your into another person's home, kosher, clean. And Jesus takes this sacred Jewish tradition and basically shatters it. He takes what's to be used for ceremonial clean water and turns it into, let's get lit up at a wedding. Everybody said amen. Because, I mean, that is what the text talks about, because the master of the banquet says, you know, Usually the wedding, the bridegroom brings out the cheaper wine after everybody's had too much to drink. And there must have been something in that grape juice that made them want cheaper wine after they're done drinking the best wine. I mean, that's just what the text says. I'm just saying. If you want to talk about this with me after the service, we're not going to get into it now. But Jesus took a sacred Jewish tradition of using these urns that were sacred for holy cleansing and says, you know what? We're going to use this to enjoy fellowship together. And so he does it. He brings it. And then the servants fill the water to the brim. Jesus tells them to draw it out and go and give it to the master of the banquet. He goes and lets them taste it. And he goes, how can you do this? You're bringing out the best wine now. And, and so he calls the bridegroom aside and gives the bridegroom the credit for this wine. Jesus all along knew that it was a miracle. The servants knew it was a miracle. Mary knew it was a miracle. And the disciples knew it was a miracle. But nobody else did. You realize that? I mean, there were maybe ten people that knew about this miracle that happened when Jesus changed the water into wine. He didn't do it for the master of the banquet. He didn't do it for the bridegroom. He didn't do it for the bride. He didn't do it for the wedding party. He did it because he wanted to establish himself as the Son of God and it says in the last verse, this first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed his glory and his disciples put their faith in him. So I want to ask you, men and women, when it comes to doing ministry, what is it that God's called you to do? Is it that he's called you to go out, take a 50 pound Bible and go stand on the corner on the square and preach the gospel? Any of you feel called to do that? nor me neither. Did he, did, he, did he mean for you to take your Bible with you to work and lay it on your desk and make sure you let everybody know in your office that you're a believer in Jesus and that you're a follower of him? Did it mean that every time you go and you pray in a public restaurant, you pray out loud so everybody can hear you? Is that what Jesus has called you to? Because I think this is a great example, this illustration of Jesus doing a miracle that's done in a common way among a few people so that a few people may put their faith in him. And I tell you, for me, as I travel around the world and mostly in Africa, I love to share my faith, but I do it in a natural way. And I just want to share this with you. I might have shared this with you before, but it's worth repeating. 
when I, when I travel and I'm on an airplane or a bus or a car or wherever I am, I ask people three questions. The first question is very simple. What is your name? And it's just a way to connect with somebody. So I'll say to somebody, hey, I'm Michael. What's your name? And they'll tell me their name. Hey, I'm Bill. And then I'll say, where are you from? Because I love finding out where people are from. Sometimes they say, well, I'm from Canada or I'm from, you know, Africa or from whatever. And then I say, well, hey, I'm from Georgia. You know, so we have this communication where you try to build a bridge with somebody about where they're from. Now, the third question in our culture, if we say, what's your name? Where are you from? What would be the third question we ask? What do you do? Can I just ask you all to vanish that question forever and bury it into the deepest hole you can ever bury it? Because we compare ourselves to one another, don't we? That we have this kind of strata of living that if you're a stay-at-home mom and you're talking to some CEO executive female entrepreneur, you feel like, you know, I don't measure up. And for me as an evangelist and I meet a lawyer or a doctor or a whatever, you know, you kind of have this comparative thing and you do it with money and you do it with job title and it just is, it's wrong. Say amen. It's wrong. And so I, I would rather ask, what are you passionate about? Because everybody has passions, don't they? Everybody has passions. Even though you may not even know what your passion is, everybody has a passion. How many of you all are food passion people? Like you love food. Like there was nobody at the 815 service that were passionate about food. How about music? Anybody passionate about music? Some of you guys. How about women? Any clothes, horses, uh, shoes, purses? You can raise your hand. It's okay. You're in church. Tell the truth. And so, you know, my daughter is a shoe, like, hoarder. I mean, I think she has every sandal that she's ever had from the time she was 13. I don't think her foot size has changed, but she's passionate about shoes. I love that our pastor is not passionate about clothes. That he doesn't care what he looks like, and most of the members care, and they buy him clothes. If y'all know, if y'all see our pastor and he's looking good... I promise you, one of our members has bought him a nice shirt. <laughs> and like, I come to prayer meeting on Tuesday and he'll have these hip tennis shoes and I'm going, where'd you get these? Somebody bought them for me. Physical touch. So do not try to do that with our pastor. But I will say that he's passionate about people. And he's passionate about relationships. Because for me... He was 23 years ago my intern when I was a youth pastor. So everything that you've learned, you learned from me because I basically (laughs) taught him everything he knew in two months that he was at the church 23 years ago. And uh, but I've had the privilege of sitting at his feet for these past eight years. And when I was going through the hardest time of my life back in 2012, 2013, I came to my pastor and I shared my stuff with him and he just looked through my stuff, and he said to me, Michael, what do you want to do in ministry? And I kept wanting to say, but what about my stuff? What about my sin? What about my garbage? And he just saw through that, and he said, Michael, what do you want to do in ministry? That's what I love about our pastor, is that he cares more about you and about what God's called you to do than he does about your sin. And I got some news for you. Jesus does too. Jesus cares more about you today 
than he does about what you've done or didn't do in your sin. He cares about what he wants to do in you and through you to a lost and hurting world. And this is what I love about this passage, about Jesus just taking water and turning it into to wine just for the servants, for his mama Mary, and for the disciples. And it's kind of odd to me. I don't know if you've thought about it, and I may be off the chart here, but, but it's interesting that Jesus' mother came to him and said, they don't have any more wine. And she said that to Jesus like, so what does that have to do? What, what did she expect Jesus to do in that moment? And I kind of wondered maybe two or three years earlier if Mary, they're sitting at home and she says, hey, Jesus, would you get me a glass of water? And he comes and gives her and it's like a Cabernet 2004, you know, and she's like, oh, <laughs> little God gift here, huh? I just, maybe it happened that way. But Jesus knew that the time was right then and right now. And he needed his mama in that moment to say, now's the time. Because even in himself, he said, this is not my time, but mama knows best. And she's the one who said, Jesus, now's the time. And I would say to you, men and women, today, now is the time that God has called each one of us to engage in ministry. That there are people all around you that God wants you to influence, not by thumping them over the head with a Bible, not by forcing Jesus down their throat, but by building relationship with them and building friendship with them and giving them the kingdom of God in natural and supernatural ways. And I think Jesus did that by turning the water into wine. He didn't, he didn't raise the dead in that first miraculous moment. He didn't cast out demons. He didn't feed 5,000. He simply took simple water and turned it into amazing wine just for a few servants, for his mama, and for the disciples. And I think Jesus did that, it says, so that the disciples put their faith in him. Now, I want you to look at this last passage, and then we'll be done. Say amen. But if you look at John 14, verses 12 through 14, Jesus says to his disciples, Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these, because I am going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. You see, men and women, there was a purpose in Jesus changing that water into wine so that his disciples would put their faith in him. And as they continued to walk together and eat together and drink together, the significance of what that wine and that bread meant to Jesus and to, to his disciples. Because the first miracle was changing water into wine. And the last event that Jesus had with his disciples was taking a glass of wine and a piece of bread and saying, Take, eat, for this is my body broken for you. Take, drink, for this is my blood for the forgiveness of sins. And Jesus wanted to share with his disciples that they would put their faith in him and that they would believe in him, but also that they would do greater things than him. Men and women, I believe Jesus wants to speak to you today that he wants to say to you, 
you will do even greater things than Jesus did. I want to tell you, church, you have permission to do greater things than Jesus did. Why? Because his word says so. And my heart, my, my hope, my prayer for you today is that you would believe God's word. You would believe that that's what he's calling you to do today, right now. You may be saying, I'm not ready yet. It's not my time yet. And Mary's just gently saying, do whatever he tells you to do. I believe the Holy Spirit is calling us today, right here, right now, to say it's time to engage in ministry. So I want to encourage you, as we have worship time and as Kaylee comes up and plays and as there will be prayer teams up here for you to pray with, I want to encourage you that maybe you've been making excuses, maybe you've been filling up the empty spaces with this sense that you're not ready. I want to tell you that Jesus says you're ready. It doesn't matter that you're flawed. It doesn't mean uh, that, that it doesn't matter that you're broken. Jesus wants to use you as a broken vessel. He wants to use you just the way you are right now. And he wants to use you to expand his kingdom. Because there are lost people that need what you have. You don't have to be perfect. You have to be willing and submitted to a holy God who loves you. And he will transform what you call water into wine. And it will be sweet and wonderful and full of his spirit. So I want to pray with you now. And as the Lord ministers to you, I want to ask you to come. And if you have any prayer requests for anything, whether it's salvation, whether it's healing, whether it's just a need for prayer, you can come to me. I'll be sitting right up front or the prayer team will be here. We'll anoint you with oil. Whatever needs you have, don't hesitate. This is why we gather together as a body. And men and women, God wants to use you to change the world. He wants to use you to be salt and light, to be new wine. So would you pray with me now? Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the power in your word and the significance and the power of this simple message of Jesus taking water and turning it into wine. But it wasn't for everyone. It was just for a few. But God, you used it that the disciples might believe in you. And Father, you want to use us today to change the world. God, some of us are, we're afraid. We're scared and we're making excuses. And I just pray right now that the Spirit of God would come upon you. You wouldn't make any more excuses. And you'd just say, you know what? I don't know what it means, but I want to come forward and I want people to pray for me. And I want to, I want to speak life over people. I want to be salt and light in my home, in my workplace, in my family, wherever it is. So, God, I pray by the power of your spirit that you would minister to us. That, God, you would speak the word that Mary spoke to Jesus. We have no more wine. Do whatever he tells you to do. Father, I pray that we would respond as Jesus did and just do the, the miraculous, the natural in supernatural ways. And so, Lord, use us to change your world. And we thank you for this. In Jesus' name. Amen. You come as the Lord leads you.